Okay. There you go. All right. Well, today awesome. I'm so excited to be chatting with Charlene and Vince Lee, co-founders of Eatable. And Eatable is a luxury popcorn brand. If you think about this, the day-to-day -day snacks that you're consuming um, have been under-innovated for a quiet period of time. And they're all very bland and very not that tasty, right? So when I tried your popcorn, guys, I was just amazed. Not only am I a fan of you as entrepreneurs, but I also love the product that you created. So I am dying to talk to you about that. But I guess before we do, I would love to get to know you and maybe you can just take a few minutes to introduce yourselves. Um, how did you guys meet? <laughs> so uh, I'm Charlene and this is Vince, my husband, other half. Um, we've actually been married for 11 years now, um, making popcorn for most of that time. But um, in our early days, uh, Vince and I actually, when we were dating, we really bonded in the wine tasting class uh, that we took together at George Brown. And um, since that time, we've always been foodies, people who enjoyed kind of like the finer experiences of life, going out to the city and exploring all the new restaurants um enjoying that kind of time in our lives and um it was really one day we were invited into a housewarming and we had to kind of just at the last minute run into a store near us and just pick up something to bring to an intimate gathering and we were just mm -hmm. so frustrated that uh all of the snacks on the shelves were either like laced with artificial mm -hmm. ingredients all the fillers um the sweets that you want to enjoy but were really just full of guilt at the end of it or the healthier snacks uh, tended to be a little less exciting in terms of flavor profile, but not something that we got excited about bringing right. um, mm -hmm. to someone's place for a celebration. So um, we literally kind of went home and we made this popcorn that we've been actually making on our stovetop for years, not really thinking anything of it. Mm -hmm. It was a scotch whiskey infused uh, caramel popcorn that Vince got the initial recipe out of like a, a chef's cookbook <laughs> and then we decided to just kind of see what happens when you pour a little bit of single melt scotch into the caramel and cook it out and what um, happens i mean and, I, I assume it tastes well does it give you, give you a high or is it is it just for the flavor it's more for the underlying flavors and um we've since enhanced it over time uh we noticed a lot of challenges with it early on but i mean for that party, it was it was a hit. So like it was the yep. talk of the party. People were like, "How did you do this?" Like, "Oh my gosh, I've never tasted anything like that." And then fast forward a couple of years, again, not thinking anything of it, we just happened to um, relocate to Boston um, for a job and um, just joined this commercial kitchen accelerator program that was running just as a way to kind of meet people in the city um, because we didn't really know anybody at that time, and so um, that that accelerator program introduced us to a lot of concepts that were involved in running a food business from start to finish. At the end, there was a pitch competition. Um, and then the Scotch whiskey infused popcorn was what mm. was submitted. And it ended up placing like top two in that competition among a panel of just experts in the industry, uh, buyers from large retail chains. And like, I think that was the moment that it was like, Eureka, <sighs> you know, like maybe we should, this idea has legs mm -hmm. maybe like um so I was working on another job at the time and we 
I'll let Vince talk about what was we call our kind of third life third crisis life crisis. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was. Uh, I think for most of our lives, we were obviously in the corporate world, and at that time, we kind of almost made a change. We're like, okay, you know, we we had a kid. Mm-hmm. He was at the time what year and a half, one and a half years old. We had a dog with us, and all these things were kind of happening around us in our environment. And we're like, you know, maybe we can change ourselves as well. And we decided to essentially exit the corporate world and kind of carry this idea forward. Mm-hmm. And we brought it back home where our whole support network was around us. And we've kind of grown it since then um, with the help of our support network and everything. So it's, I mean, uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it was Oops. like a challenge. It was like something that we really wanted to do. We didn't want to leave this planet essentially with regret and I think that that is the number one thing for a lot of uh, people as they get older it's like you know you start to think about you know the regrets you might have like the things that you should have done and didn't get a chance to and I think for us this quarter or this third life crisis was our way of saying you know we don't want to to leave this planet with regret and I think that was like the big thing for us like I think you know we there was a time when um, going through all of these milestone changes in your life, we felt a little bit lost. We felt like, you know, we wanted to have a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And at that time, it definitely wasn't in the careers that we had. Um, we found that it was like really draining. And every time we would feel like we needed to talk or vent, you know, like we found a place around, around my mom's dinner table. Um, and you know, just like being comforted by like good company and good food. Um, and that we sort of realized became like an anchor in our lives, just these talks around the dinner table um, with our family. And so eatable is really just like a culmination between like the idea of celebrating everyday moments mm-hmm. um, with good food and good company. So, I mean, you take a good drink and a good snack and literally boom, that's like the perfect pairing that kind of Vince and I started. Um, and, and alcohol is kind of synonymous with celebration. And we're also taking like the humble snack of popcorn, which, you know, had its place in movie theaters and, um, you know, gatherings at home and stuff like that. But up until this point was never really regarded as like a premium gourmet snack that was um, belonged on a charcuterie board. And we kind of just took that idea, took these two loves, these two angers in our lives um, that really carried us through some really tough times and turned it into something that evolved over time but I I would say you know why we brought this to life was we wanted a food product that would just remind people how important it is to take some time out and like just celebrate these everyday little moments in your life um and that's literally how beautiful was born (laughs) I I love that and I'm going to admit this uh I sometimes love um having ice cream and put a little bit of alcohol in it I think it started with Bailey's but then I said to myself, <laughs> why not experiment with other types of liquor or liqueur? Um, yep. And so over time, I just realized that dessert pairs really well with different types of liquors. And, and uh, you know, why would popcorn not be any different? Um, but there's so much to unpack there, right? I mean, you know, you've been in the relationship, obviously, building this business um, is one thing. And then, you know, uh, quitting a corporate job, which is very safe assuming around the time when you have a kid who's you know one one year old one and a half year old um and pursuing entrepreneurship as a full-time 
uh, endeavor, uh, realizing that regret at the end of life is probably, you know, way more powerful uh, than, you know, the, 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 the short term safety and, and security of a corporate job. Um, and then assuming you didn't really know much about, you know, CPG and e-commerce, you know, outside of what you were doing in the kitchen. And obviously, you know, that worked in the, uh, you know, samples that you brought to that food accelerator, uh, you know, got amazing reaction. But that's a small batch. You know, there is a, a, a long winded journey from there to say retail shelf, you know, shelf, shelves or, 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 you know, online where, you know, thousands of people can presumably buy it. Uh, on a daily basis. So how did you get into educating yourself about business side of things, right? So you have this great product, it's clearly drawing um, positive reaction. And how did you go about actually understanding what it's going to take to commercialize uh, something like this? I think uh, at the beginning, we uh, bit off a lot more than we we could chew. Uh, Just like any entrepreneurs, I'm sure it's the same with yourself. You start off with the idea and you start to research it and then you go down that rabbit hole and next thing you know you're like eating breathing living this thing 24 7 and i think that is what ended up happening to us we got sucked into this vacuum and essentially that is all we did like we would talk day in day out like even with while our kid is there like you know (laughs) we should be playing with them but we're like in the back of our minds we're like our head is spinning about what ideas or what things we can do and I think it just becomes something that is all consuming. And it is something that if you have the drive and you want to learn about something, you will. And you will research it to death. And I think that's pretty much what we did. We had no experience within CPG. And I think quite a lot of brands nowadays actually may not have either. But it's just about taking the initiative to like learn about what you need to learn. And I think for us, it was like, you know, learning the in, ins and outs of some of the science behind let's say working with sugar or some of the ins and outs of working with trying to get our brand um, shelf ready. And, you know, even everything from like, you know, the, the nutrition facts table at the back of the thing, you know, we had to figure out, okay, if we can't do it ourselves, who can we get to do it? And we just had to kind of amass a network of people to kind of help us um, get our product from the stovetop all the way to, to, to the store shelf. So I think it's just a lot of learning. and Definitely, it yeah. takes a village. I mean, it started with the product and making sure the product was good enough. So there was something that was magical almost about being in an environment. When After we moved back home, we found a local community kitchen, or, or sorry, a commercial kitchen here. Yeah, so and it was actually run by Paris Train uh, pastry chefs. Um, and we had all these bakers coming in and out, uh, working in the same space around us. Um, and Vince would be making these batches and, and we'd be giving it to chefs and sommeliers like, taste this, taste this, is mm-hmm. it good? And we would be like tasting it, pairing it with the alcohol. And mm-hmm. so there was something magical about that environment that just kind of drove you um, mm-hmm. to do more. And we really have always thrived with this, the underdog mentality. We knew that something like this had never been done before, but it, it we almost like thrived on the challenge of like how to make this happen and not only just happen, but make it happen with like natural ingredients too. Right. So we wanted to make sure that we stayed away from all of the artificial stuff that you see in a lot of confectionery products on the shelf today. Um, and then really it was just about like validating that product. You know, we, we launched three SKUs initially mm-hmm. when we first opened up our online store. And from day one, it's been an mm-hmm. exercise of like gathering feedback from customers, yeah, like giving our products away almost 
uh, to friends and families and, and um, trying to nab those first crucial, you know, micro influencers in our local area and just getting feedback. So um, we've always listened to the market and the customer from day one to kind of just improve our product over time. What were those cues? What were the flavors that you launched with initially? Um, so the original, the OG is whiskey on the pops. So it's a mm-hmm. scotch, a scotch whiskey infused caramel. Um, on air pop, covered air pop popcorn, and we bake it to have to give it a nice crunch. The second flavor was pop the champagne, which is um, this one is the, one of our most creative ones. It's that's the one jam- I think I'm. I'm <laughs> yes, that's the one. Yeah, so um, that one is kettle corn covered with Belgian white chocolate, and we take these popping sugar crystals and uh, infuse them with champagne. Mm. Um, and so that literally pops in your mouth. Like That's what it is. I I, yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and then our third flavor um, was a peanut butter and Merlot jelly kind of blend. Um, we've changed that one a little bit over time, just you know for nut allergies and whatnot. But uh, we've grown from three skews to six skews in two size formats now. Uh, we've been very fortunate to do some very interesting custom collaborations um, Mm. with a couple of uh, large players in the alcohol space too, which has been super exciting for us. And and we'll get to that in a moment. I'd love to know how you how you ended up collaborating with some of the alcohol brands. But presumably to come up with something like that, especially, you know, the popped up champagne, which does sparkle. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you guys had that candy before you you eat and kind of kind of sizzles inside. Um, uh, I just uh, remember that when I was little. Uh, so it reminded me of that. Um, but presumably for you to be able to create these products, you know, you have to experiment with ingredients and and did you know how to make, I mean, what was the process of actually, you know, creating this product? Um, were you iterating a lot? Was it sort of like a recipe yeah. that was already out there that you, that you were following? I mean, I think you mentioned you started with a simple recipe, but I'm curious how you sort of made all these, you know, incredibly differentiated products come to life. Yeah. So we started off with like a base, um, which was a recipe that we found uh, from like a chef. And then we kind of morphed it over time. Uh, we started experimenting with the way uh, flavors would work together. I mean, we've always had a passion for food and I've always had a passion for technology too. So, you know, like I'll, I pretty much have every single kitchen gadget that you can imagine. <laughs> and I tried to figure out ways to use those gadgets to kind of create what our end product ended up being. And um, for the caramels, it was more so... Uh, the challenges started occurring when we started to scale up the product at the smaller scale level. It was okay, but over time it was consistency. So it's obviously in food, you want to try to have your product be as consistent as possible. So it was that madness of trying to seek consistency in every single batch, trying to get it to a point where I can pull out any bag from any batch and know that it's going to be the exact same product that's what drove me to continue to research and figure out ways to get it to a point where I, I felt like it was acceptable. And with on the chocolate and the pop the champagne that you were just talking about, that one started off as, okay, you know, I'm working with chocolate and I thought, okay, this is easy. You know, it's chocolate. You just melt it, you coat it and it's good. But apparently that led me down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out, okay, chocolate is not that easy. Um, you, if you want to, uh, coat something with chocolate and have it palatable and have it uh, actually 
stick to the kernels and whatnot. You got to work with, let's say we started with good chocolate. Then we got to, we went down the path of like tempering the chocolate and, you know, getting a machine eventually to temper that chocolate, take it through the different stages of crystallization so that by the time that you end up with the chocolate that you're going to eat, it's actually, you know, has a good texture, has a good uh, taste, has a good uh, visual appeal. So I feel like it was that kind of um, those challenges that kind of led us to, to where we are now, essentially. So, but it was a, it was a huge learning, learning curve, learning process. So. I bet it was. And what do you remember about the first year in business, commercially speaking, right? So when you started presumably selling these right away and uh, people, you know, would buy them from you, was it all kind of direct to consumer? Were you selling to friends? Were you first selling online? Or was there like a store that you potentially partnered with to uh, to get your product somewhere on the shop? I'm just curious about, you know, what you remember about that distribution and that kind of like first, you know, first uh, year in, in business. Yeah, so I mean, I knew from day one we needed to open a Shopify store. Um, I'd always tinkered with selling online from a very young age. Like, I posted stuff on eBay, did a little bit of Etsy. So, like, the online world wasn't very foreign to me. Um, I knew definitely we needed our own website. And I, I remember the feeling of my first order. It was from my dad. And I was like, Dad, <laughs> make room for some other customers. Um, but that feeling of getting your first order from someone you don't know was like, it's like a feeling that I'll hold on to for the rest of my life. Um, because it's just so special. You're just like, oh my gosh, I actually put words on a page and made a website that actually convinced somebody to buy a food product that, um, they normally would have bought in their grocery store. And I, I knew this one stat that, you know, 79 or 80% of people still prefer to go into their grocery store. Uh, with food and touch the package and pick up the package and it's it's a very kind of like um, high touch kind of experience but of course in 2019 um, something called COVID-19 happened and that really kind of threw a wrench into things a little bit um, but the first year was actually very unknown um, and that was actually really scary because we started getting some of our first initial orders from the site we we really started actively um marketing ourselves amongst um our friends and family to start just going by word of mouth um we just scoured into instagram and tried to find some people who might be willing to accept free product and just promote our brand and and collaborate with a few other local brands in our areas to do some giveaways just to get our name out there but um Somewhere along the way, I want to say that we got in front of the right person at the right time because um, we actually had a buyer from Indigo um, discover us kind of six months into our business uh, wow. with some interest in actually stocking our product in, in large retail. So that was sort of like a crazy moment for us like I was first of all I thought it was spam or something I didn't even think it was real <laughs> she, um, they, they presumably <laughs> reached out to you over email and said hey so I'm yeah. so and so I'm a, I'm a buyer at Indiegogo and I I, I, I want to carry your product and you thought that was spam you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, I think that I mean I would like to think it was a little bit of luck but it was also a little bit of um, just intentional brand building on, on our part like we knew that from the very beginning, we wanted to establish our brand as, as um, a brand that was, you know, premium and aspirational. And a big part of that was kind of like 
developing the imagery and the lifestyle imagery around that brand that would show people like, hey, this is what popcorn looks like when you're eating it out of a wine glass or when it's on a charcuterie board. Because previous to that, that type of imagery didn't exist. Like we couldn't rely on the market's imagination to understand this for us. We had to create this imagery. So once we did, and some of that imagery started kind of like going around the internet, um, people started getting like a new idea of what popcorn would be capable of, like the different areas where popcorn might fit. Previously, um, popcorn had never really been packaged in like our style of packaging. Um, in a very high quality, you know, foil bag, almost like the quality of a coffee bag. Um, so we pushed the idea of the packaging of our product, the placement of our product, um, the integration into like a lifestyle almost. And I feel like that is what sort of got the first pairs of eyes on us. And, and that was kind of a key turning point in our business where we're like, oh, okay, um, Indigo's interested. And we also got interest from Saks and we were like, I think we need to like actually move out of a commercial kitchen now because we couldn't continue to just rent space and time in a, in a space that we couldn't control. So around that time, we had an opportunity to lease a very small facility space in Vaughan. Um, and it felt really scary at the time because things were still so uncertain to think about getting into our own space, investing in machinery, just so that we can maintain control over the process and our product. Um, it was very, very scary. And like, and this is still the first year, like six months into our business. Um, we had had an opportunity to pitch ourselves on Dragon's Den and ended up getting a deal on air, but everything felt like it was biting off more than we could chew. But at the time, you you kind of just like live on adrenaline. You kind of don't really think about it too much. You're just like, all right, all right, I'll get to go on Dragon's Den. Sure, I'll do it. Um, retailer comes to me and says they want to place a PO. Sure, we'll figure it out. Like it was very like, take it and we'll figure it out. And then, but, you know, it certainly wasn't easy. Like we invested a, quite a bit of our own kind of life savings into this business. Like we took out a business loan to, to, um, kind of fund the renovations on the facility so all of that like I don't even want to say that it was like it was very much of the leap of faith at the time and everybody thought we were crazy everybody was like oh my gosh you guys are making popcorn for a living like are you sure this is like a viable business and and I can't tell you how much chaos and noise like there was in our brains at that time it was it was pretty tough it on one hand you're trying to be responsible and make like calculated business decisions on another hand, you have like people in your life who have like the best intentions and only really want what's best for you telling like, are you sure? Be careful. Um, so it definitely wasn't easy. There, there were so many times where, you know, we'd be lying, lying awake in bed, just questioning what we're doing with our lives. <laughs> but I guess that's all part of the journey, right? <sighs> I'm just gonna move really quickly, but I, <laughs> yeah, I no problem. <laughs> no problem. Picking the spots for the uh, for the interview can be tricky, um, but I would love I would love to understand um, also when when it comes to retail distribution. And as I'm standing, I'm talking and I'm asking questions, but I'm curious because I want to learn. As you uh, as you think about retail distribution, um, is it something that just happens? I mean, do, do people just come to you and say, you know, you have a cool product? And I'd love to carry it and, you know, ship me, you know, thousands, you know, thousand units and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, or is that like a business development pr 
process, meaning that, you know, you create a list and, you know, you, you figure out which places you want to be in and, you know, you start DMing and LinkedIn messaging and emailing and, you know, creating a presentation, negotiating terms. Like how does, how do these things work? Because on the surface, it seems you just appear on a shelf. But something tells me behind the scenes, it's not that simple. There's probably a lot of logistics and, and, and magic that, that goes into that. Talk to me about the process. And, and you know, maybe as, we, as, we're, as we're talking about that, I think I saw the recent uh, announcement and, you know, you, 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 you ended up uh, at, at Hudson's Bay, which, you know, one of the, uh, you know, Legacy Canada's original, uh, you know, retail store. They sell, you know, everything from furniture to clothes to, you know, home improvements and, and, and now popcorn. Talk to me about that process of actually, you know, going from just being an online brand to now being able to be discovered at places like, you know, Indigo and, and, and Hudson's Bay. What, what does the process look like? Um, I definitely think it's a little bit of both of what you said. Um, it's a lot of pitching, a lot of um, preparing presentations, kind of sitting down thinking about one day I want to be here. And, and I think we did all that as we were kind of going about the initial stages of building our business like I remember we would on weekends just like take our kid to the mall like as parents to kind of kill time but we would be walking into these stores and like studying like what kind of products are on the shelf um walking down and paying attention to you know what some of the other brands within the CBG space were doing how they were merchandised um and I remember just feeling like you know one day one day we're gonna be here like I, and I want to call it like it's manifestation or something like that. Like, I don't think I was aware of it at the time, but I feel like when you have that vision of like where you want to end up, all of the actions that you end up taking in your life will kind of get you to there, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, so it wasn't in my mind that we would end up being on the shelves of these large retailers, like very on in our, very early on in our career. But I know what we wanted to do was just understand like uh, some of the same questions that you're asking us right now, like reading stories on like brands that we're seeing on the shelves, like how did they get there? Reading some of the, the case studies that we see on the internet, like um, on the things they had to go through, just even if to feel like we're not so alone in this journey. Um, so we, we did that and we made a list of all of these stores that we wanted to go into. Um, we we put on some local names. We did a little bit of outreach, both on email and Instagram. Um, I think, you know, most people didn't actually pay attention to us at the time. And, but I think that just not giving up on that and just keeping it going kind of in the background, um, it ended up helping. And um, really our turning point for sales, I would, I want to say like, didn't happen until like in the middle of the pandemic where we decided to um, invest a little bit in like digital ad spend, um, bring on like a sales rep to help uh, pitch our brand to a lot of other brick and mortar stores all across Canada, because we sort of understood that like Vince and I, because we were also managing a manufacturing facility, we were also wearing all the hats. Um, we didn't feel comfortable giving it our best shot in terms of sales from the get-go and we knew we needed a little bit of help. Yeah, yeah, that's so, um, you know, we were fortunate enough to work with a really strong crop of summer students through a high school co-op program in our district, like um, in our school district. So we had always gotten 
people who have worked with us, like a little bit in the hands of sales outreach, like a little bit of experience. It's, it's important in the business, whether that's just a quick DM to show a brand that, hey, we exist. So we'd love to collaborate on something. Um, would you like to stock us in your gift boxes, like things like that, to um, joining accelerator programs um, meant for other people within the space, that community, uh, making connections, like meeting a mentor that maybe did a workshop and then they knew somebody who happened to know somebody that was a buyer there. So I think that um, there's a little bit of active outreach on our part, but a little bit of just being immersed in the community and meeting people and having discussions. Um, so all of that kind of took place over, I would say like the first two years, two and a half years of our business. Yeah, and I feel like within the uh, CPG space, we're noticing that it's actually a fairly tight-knit community. And the the six degrees of separation is really strong in that community. And, like, one person will know another person. And it's like the, the spider web. Like, you know, it's pretty soon you're, you pretty much know somebody who knows somebody else that's, that maybe you need to get in contact with. Let's say they're a buyer here. And I feel like that is... Uh, is the good part about this CPG arena is that, you know, so many people know so many people uh, like someone else. And by you kind of networking, you're able to kind of get to somebody that knows somebody that you need to get to. So I feel like it's actually a really good uh, space to be in. And it, we feel quite supported within the industry. Yeah. yeah especially with like with paper stack as well. Yeah. Um, you guys have been <laughs> so <laughs> instrumental and even just like, so um so gung-ho about like providing everyone like with resources and really paying attention to like what we're needing and and really like customizing the resources that you give to us so even things like that like we've already just from like a couple months of working with you guys like already see so much value in the community that you're trying to build in this space and it, it's all good for like the whole ecosystem um I appreciate the kind words, and I, I promise to everybody listening, we did not, we did not uh, <laughs> intend to turn that into, a, into a, uh, an, an, an ad commercial. But I do appreciate appreciate the kind words. Um, I guess what I'm trying to understand is um, uh, how do you divide responsibilities between yourselves? So is one person more marketing oriented, another one more product oriented, or do you kind of just do everything to, together? Um, how do you think about the division of labor in your in your in your company? I think early on, it was, uh, I guess we were probably involved in a lot of the same aspects. But I think as we've kind of grown our team, we've had to carve out roles. Like, otherwise, we're just going to get in each other's way. And also, we're kind of playing to each other's strengths. Like, my strength is more, I guess, production-oriented, you know, more hands-on. Whereas, you know, what my, my awesome counterpart is more on the you know she her strengths lie maybe in marketing or you know certain aspects so i feel like it's just carving out those roles so that we're clear on what we're doing because we can't do it all at the end of the day we can't do it all so we have to rely on our team all the strengths that they bring to kind of carry certain pieces forward so that we can kind of start growing this company to levels that you know we want to get to so We've, we've done all the jobs like in this company like both of us have done all the jobs like i remember one of our first trade shows early on in our business we had like five you know home popcorn makers and we were still like, working out of a commercial kitchen like lined up on the counter and i was like running like one popcorn machine would fill then i would just dump it somewhere and then i'd go to the next one and pour the kernels in here and i was just like 
we've all done that. We've all done the packing. We've all shipped boxes, like mm -hmm. everything. But then eventually one day it got, it kind of got to the point where we're just like, okay, mm -hmm. um, I don't think this is going to help us grow. <laughs> and it's <laughs> not sustainable like, well, either. I know. I, sometimes I still write, handwrite my own notes and like certain people's like packages. It's, oh. I'll never like, you know, if I can, I will. And uh -huh. I love that part of it. Um, but I know also in the back of my mind that like, you know, we can't do all of it. You can't, you can't scale like that, right? Because it's, yeah. at some point yeah. you just, you, you, there's so much to this business. There's so many moving parts. It's kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like being the machine yourself. There's too many cogs to move. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. You need to, you need yeah. to let go. And not only that, but I also want to share. So my background is in technology less than CPG. Um, it's very easy to just be in one office and, you know, you have a marketing person kind of sitting next to, you know, developer kind of, you know, sitting next to, you know, customer support. Um, and it's fairly transferable set of skills where, you know, from one, you know, technology venture to another, you know, you, you could, you could basically, you know, accomplish that with a small team. With the CPG, however, that is not the case. And, you know, the more founders I interview and we had, you know, a, a, a variety of entrepreneurs coming through the show and talking about their e-commerce brand, the more I realized, oh, my God, somebody has to drive that truck, you know, to deliver that, 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 that product and somebody needs to design the package. And, and I understand, you know, with technology, you're designing a website and, you know, so there, there are parallels to that in, in the technology space, but there is more tangible in-person you know physical component to cpg where you actually have to have somebody delivering and have to have somebody you know giving out samples in the mall and and and, and reaching out to you know to collaborate and when you are collaborating i mean like what we've done with you know with you guys uh where we you know drove to your facility and by the way you know it's it's such a great experience but even managing a production facility and all the machinery and things like that is just requires a lot of you know hands-on uh, hands-on hours and, and and people, you know, joining the team. And so, out of curiosity, uh, uh, how large is, is your is your team today? <laughs> There's eight of us. Actually. Oh, there are. Yeah. Well, a couple of us are virtual. A couple of us are virtual. Majority of us are in person in our office. Yeah. So we've got a really small but mighty production team. Um, we've got a couple of people like on the customer service side and, um, so I, I would say, yeah, we're definitely a very small and mighty team, but we're also really lucky to have some really great agency partners that we work with mm -hmm. as well, um, yeah. that really bring like industry expertise because I myself am from an accounting and a business background. So although I've always had a, a really like big interest in all things creative and I, I believe that at my core I'm kind of actually a creative person in an accountant's body but um <laughs> like those are the skills that I brought like through formal education and then Vince is also like a business business degree but with like an IT focus and experience in real estate so right. we don't we didn't come to the table with all the skills we need to build a successful CPG brand I think as founders, it's our job to identify where the skills or knowledge gaps are um, really early in the process and then come up with a plan to fill in those gaps with people who do have that expertise or like agency partners mm -hmm. who will bring that expertise. Um, so I think that that's the way we, we grow and scale. And one of, I mean, I remember one of the questions they asked us in Dragon's Den um, a couple months in was like, why are you manufacturing your own product? 
Mm. Um, why not just like get a cool manufacturer to do this from day one? Like, and they really grilled us hard on that. But we really believe that um, what made our product unique was not something that was really easily duplicated within the market. And so we felt that it was really important to just maintain control of that, especially really early on in the business when we we're still getting our name out there to basically um, make sure that the quality of what we put out into the market is like up to par. But now a couple of years in and we're looking at scaling, you know, we are kind of veering towards that other direction again, where we get a little bit of outside help um, so that we can scale things that maybe are, we're fine um, and on our machinery now can probably be better done on like the lines of another stronger manufacturing partner. So in different phases of your business, you would have different needs. And I think we have to just be really aware of like paying attention to what those gaps are and just making sure that we find the right people to help us get to the next level. Um, with the salesperson that you brought on, um, were you already familiar with the process of how to navigate sales or did this person create their own process? I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, you mentioned you kind of have, had your hands in every step, you know, in a way, and, and, and you kind of did that yourself. Um, but with sales, you know, early, early, you know, on, you realize you just wouldn't be able to, to devote your full attention. I think that's, that's how you described it. Um, did you know how to sell and were you able to teach that person how to sell? Or did you say, you know what, it's your job now, figure it out and results will speak for, uh, for, for themselves? I think uh, for us, it was kind of a collaborative approach. Um, you would hire somebody in that kind of has a little bit of sales training. But um, early on in my life, like I was actually in sales, like for like one of the tech manufacturers. And basically, a, a part of the job was, you know, cold calling or even some, some warm calls sometimes. But I think it's um, taking some of those practices that I learned early on in uh, some of my earlier days and essentially translating that into, you know, the CPG space, because sales in itself kind of transcends all industries, like it's kind of industry agnostic. And basically, I can take some of those same sales principles and use it in, you know, selling food product. And I think at the end of the day, it's sales is all about connecting with people. If you're able to make that connection with somebody, that is the value in itself Like you're you can sell any product, as long as you're able to connect with that person. So I think it was kind of a collaborative approach. We would, I would take some of those sales principles and we would kind of mesh that with what product we're trying to sell and then kind of also uh, understand where the person we're bringing in, what their um, strengths were and kind of mesh that together and try to craft messaging around it to make it kind of uh, comfortable for them to pitch to, to other um, uh sorry other retailers and whatnot and that's kind of how we approached it so and i right. think we learned a lot just based on experience alone like as founders you're always selling like anytime you talk about your product you're you're technically always selling even if you don't yeah. realize it or not um and when you bring in sales professionals i think you're relying on them for like the tactical approach of like how to sell maybe like is there a formula and sort of the way this dialogue carries out and that I didn't have experience in, but something that I've carried with me since the beginning was just like the idea of like, just really understanding how your product is gonna meet someone else's need. 
And as founders, you will always know your product the best. And that kind of knowledge and that vision of what you see is possible for your brand is not something that I don't think you can ever rely on like anyone else outside of the founding team almost to understand. Um, even with large key accounts and, and like large retailers, the preference is usually still to this day in this industry that the founders give face time and the founders are present at these sales meetings because that is the founders are like pretty much the connection between the brand and the product to the end customer. Um, people, people don't always want to know so much about like what makes your product great, but they now want to know like who's behind the company. What are their values? Like what is their mission? And they want to relate to the people who are behind the company. So that's something we kind of learned being in this space. Um, I don't think either of us were very, you know, public people prior to this, like, you will be after this. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't in our wheelhouse. I never envisioned starting a business so that I could do yeah, these so talks on you know, Like that wasn't kind of why we started. But um, over time, you know, we've just started to see that um, you, we are the ones that are responsible for driving mm -hmm. that, like the brand awareness, the sales and all of that. And like, we have to put our faces out there. So that's something we've kind of learned in this space over time. Yeah. Um, but you want to surround yourself with people like in sales that really get your company. They, they love your products genuinely and they buy into this vision that you're kind of creating for where you want to go. Um, and that's just been like the most game changer thing for us. It's just working with people. I think just, just really like see the potential of it. And then everybody just like injecting their own style or their own mix into the selling, which comes across as very genuine and solutions oriented almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, you know, there's maybe about, you know, 17, 15 minutes left in this, in, in this call. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep an eye on the clock because you know, the, the, the last thing I want is to, uh, you know, keep you guys on uh, and away from, you know, making that wonderful popcorn. But I want to <laughs> dive into more tactical side, more, you know, day-to-day -day sort of operational uh, uh, side of things and really just ask you like a series of questions. Um, and, you know, um, hopefully, you know, other people can learn from this as well. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, operating a, a, a production facility, and I think, you know, I think you've, uh, you've mentioned that before you've rented out, you've invested, you've rented a, a you know, larger facility. Uh, and from what I understand, that's where you also make the products and, and then, you know, you're, you're shipping it out of the door. Um, what does the process of like operating a facility look like? And uh, um, what kind of resources did you need to put down to, to be able to afford that? I mean, you know, it sounds like you had to get some capital. You had to probably sign a lease, I'm assuming, uh, or was that space already, uh, already available to you through like an accelerator? Would love to just understand, you know, how you came to, to have that facility uh, being available to you. So I think uh, I was able to leverage some of my background. So I had, uh, in my previous life, I was uh, in commercial real estate. And so that the leasing angle of acquiring a space was not foreign to me. So the that part was pretty seamless. The other parts of it that I had no experience in was how to operate the production facility and uh, the equipment or how to outfit the space and make it food compliant. Right. So in that, in those instances where we had gaps, we would, uh, we always either try to research a lot of it ourselves on the upfront and then wherever there were more gaps, we would hire a consultant to help us 
with um, filling those gaps and trying to figure out the best flow of um, inventory from all the way from raw ingredients all the way to end where you're shipping it out the door. So we worked with a consultant pretty closely at the onset to kind of establish the flow of our space. And then with the equipment, we were able to, I was able to do a lot of research on it just because I worked with the household product, uh, like equipment, and I was able to understand what shortcomings those things had compared to more commercial equipment. So it was just do a lot of research on my own end to determine what equipment kind of fit our needs uh, in the onset. And that's kind of what we ended up acquiring um, to tie us over to this point right now. Um, so I think that running the facility just came with natural experience. It was like more so something where, you know, as you get going, you're not, not going to, the name of the game is not efficiency at the onset. It's more so just trying to get a feel and sense of how you want this facility to be. And then once you get it to a point where you're producing consistent product, good, high quality product, then now you can kind of start uh, taking a step back and taking that bird's eye view and looking at the space and go, okay, well, how can I make this a little bit more efficient? How, what can I do to sh kind of shave off some time to may maybe um, lower the cost of the product that we're producing? And I think that came with experience. That was hands-on experience. I don't think anything can ever replace that part of it. And then once we started seeing our space was like more crammed and, you know, starting to fill up and we got to figure out ways with, um, you know, how can we kind of increase our capacity in our own warehousing space? And that that came with like maybe creative solutions, working with our, our landlord and all that stuff to try to figure out, craft a solution that would be to help us get it to another level. And I think it was just those things combined that um, helped us with running this production facility the way it is. On the capital end, that was just, you know, getting loans, tapping into our own um, savings and trying to come up with that uh, capital to, to secure the equipment in the space. So We definitely bootstrapped for the first number of years um, and literally burnt out of our garage um, from the early days. Our garage in our basement um, had my kids packing boxes at some point. Yeah, so <laughs> and, um, but we were able to come across somebody who recommended that we look into getting Canadian small business financing loan. So it's something in place that's backed by the Canadian government. Um, and they make it easier for businesses that are less than two years old to qualify for funding to assist with uh, the purchase of capital equipment or leasehold improvements um, if you need to buy a building or something to buy a building. But things like that that are very difficult and capital intensive um, items for a very small business to qualify for. Um, that was definitely one of the best recommendations we had that allowed us to even move into our space so early on in our in our in our journey. Um, because normally, I would say, um, if you're a young a young business, a very early on business, you know, you are tapping into things like a personal line of credit, credit card debt, and things like that. These days, I think with the way the industry has moved, been moving and accelerated by um, the pandemic, there are so many more options in the market these days with like. You know, revenue share arrangements, um, advancing on online sales, um, credit cards that are meant to sort of, you know, run on receivables and things like that. So I think even just compared to a couple of years ago, like there are so many more options in the market now um, to help 
founders, you know, secure that capital. And paper stock is the premier one. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that program that you're uh, referencing, uh, the Canadian Small Business Financing Program. It's um, I. Um, uh, in the previous life, was going to open a co-working space, and that's the uh, the program that we actually got you know qualified for. I think it was about one hundred fifty thousand dollars at that time, um, and you do have to put a small portion. I think about twenty five percent of your own money, but the rest is uh, getting finance. So I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that that you were able to do that, and, and you know that got to, got you to the point where you know you were able to uh, open the fulfillment uh, facility. Um, let's talk about marketing for a second, right? Like there is so much to do when it comes to, you know, generating sales, obviously you've got a salesperson making calls and, you know, getting you into, into shelves, uh, onto the shelves of different, uh, you know, retailers. And, but, you know, when it comes to, you know, day to day sort of like direct to consumer, um, I think advertising is the way to go. Seems like, and again, I'm going to assume that, you know, there are more than one way to acquire customers. So whether that's, you know, content or, you know, promotions, you, you get, you know, paid advertising, you got some, you know, organic social media, like TikTok and, you know, Instagram, but maybe talk to me about what you guys do for, for marketing. How do you think about, you know, customer acquisition and uh, what avenues would you recommend other, other, you know, CPG brands consider when it comes to, you know, generating awareness, generating sales? Um, so, I mean, I like to think of the marketing that we do in our company as like two different, two quite different approaches. Uh, one for our DTC, like direct to consumer segment, online e-commerce, and then the other one for our wholesale, like B2B customers. Um, I think something like social is kind of a no-brainer. Um, these days, you know, a, a lot of times, I'm sure, um, when people are looking you up as a brand, they might even hit your social channel before they go to your website. Um, so make sure, you know, you have a really good, solid uh, website that kind of does the selling for you and there's no sales rep there to help. But social is uh, what I've learned over time. Um, I don't come from a formal marketing trained background, but it's the platform in which you as a brand get to have a conversation with your end customer. So um for us in the early days, it was really about establishing that that imagery, that um, aspirational kind of imagery that came with our brand and pushing the boundaries of where popcorn belongs in your everyday life. Um, we picked Instagram and we really grew that channel. And now these days with the, uh, the focus on user-generated content and reels and video content, we're now looking to kind of start growing our TikTok presence. Um, although we're a little late in the game already, I would say, but... You know, it's never too late to start. Um, the world of marketing is always so ever-changing. And um, like I mentioned, it wasn't until we actually started to dive into digital marketing um, and paid ads on the e-commerce side that we start to see results. Like I remember taking a look at our kind of burn rate, um, you know, even like a year or two ago and wondering, you know, how am I going to sell this much popcorn <laughs> to cover all of our overhead with like, our space and, and staffing. And um, when we started delving into like digital ads, did we really understand the power of scaling something that worked like on that side? And so um, if you're someone with a tech background, you know, that might be an area of interest for you. And a lot of people kind of jump in and figure things out themselves. For us, we knew like, you know, we needed someone, we need some professional help. So um, we had employed an agency at that time to really help us understand like the nuances of advertising on different platforms like Google and Facebook. Um, 
And we're also sort of a seasonal business where like, you know, moving towards the holidays, um, we really see like an uptick in sales towards the end of the year around that holiday season. But we've been also, you know, with the help of an agency, like working on strategies to kind of like mitigate the seasonality of our sales. Um, because really the whole idea is like, if you put a dollar in to marketing and you're getting $2 back in sales, you could be like breaking even or making money. So why not put $2 in and make four or $3 in and make six. So I think once you kind of like nail that combination of what works for you and it's different for every brand, then you can really start to make smarter decisions about like how much money you invest on this channel versus that channel. And that approach is very different to like the B2B side where, you know, it's all about trade shows. It's all about in-person networking. It's all about sampling. So we really learned like what different groups of customers were looking for and, and what methods really convert best with which type of customer um, and really try to prioritize our efforts around that. I'm selfishly just making notes because there's so much to learn here and I, I had no idea about the trade shows. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, quite a few people brought that up in the, in the previous conversations. Um, something we should probably look into for, you know, for all the, uh, all, the, uh, all the CPG companies out there trying to get uh, you know, retail and wholesale distribution. Um, have you made any use of uh, online marketplaces like um, you know, well.ca or it, maybe it's not applicable to your brand specifically, but I'm just curious you know, about if you've signed up for any, you know, online distribution channels with the promise to, you know, get you matched with the, with a broker or an agent or, or a buyer um, on the other side, have you tried any of that, um, you know, innovation around distribution? Yeah. I mean, I would say that our path is um, a little bit different than I would mm -hmm. say a, a traditional CPG company that um, maybe starts with a, with a co-packer already. And then, their the name of their game typically is to work with a broker or distributor even really early on in their business to get stocked in like large grocery chains across the country um so we had not really explored that side of things like early on yet we really specialize in like a, a grassroots approach where um we we sort of had our wholesale be like an extension of our e-commerce almost so we were selling our products on like fair, um, other sort of like B2B kind of online marketplaces. We also were sold on like um, Indigo online, Hudson's Bay online marketplaces, lots of third party direct to consumer marketplaces as well to just try and get um, more brand awareness first. And then, so I would say our growth so far has been in a sort of specialty gourmet kind of food space, which may be a little bit different than um, other CPG brands who really prioritize the grocery channel. So that's kind of an untapped area for us for now. So um, I guess, you know, other than like some of our brokers and like sales reps that we're already working with, we have been in talks with like finding a potential distributor. Um, I think that that those parties are, um, definitely a lot more relevant for like CPG brands looking to scale in grocery um, and food service and things like that. So, I mean, for us, we're, we're now gradually trying to sort of move into that area as well. Got it. And I know we have just a few minutes uh, <clears throat> before we wrap this up and I, I, I would kick myself if I didn't ask about your experience on Dragon's Den. 
Um, and I think, you know, you, uh, you presumably applied. Um, and what, what, what does the process look like? I mean, do they, do they tell you ahead of time what's going to happen? Is it, is it really, you know, negotiation in real time? How does that, how does that work? And what kind of deal were you able to get uh, uh, out, of, uh, out of participating? Um, so we just applied, not thinking anything of it because we were just a couple months into our business and, um, applications come out once a year for the show. And I think we just applied online and literally, um, when filming started, we actually got called in on a standby because we were a local brand. So, um, I remember really early that morning of the day of, of shooting, getting a phone call or in an email to say, can you actually make it downtown to CBC studios by like 11 o'clock and have your pitch ready? So we, in our application, we had um, prepared like a video pitch that we submitted. But then when we got down there, we had to do the pitch again for a producer or a team that was like um, looking at it. And then they started changing things around on our pitch, like at the last second, which really me off because I don't like surprises <laughs> but um when we were actually in front of the dragons it was pretty surreal um it almost was just it felt like I was just a deer looking into headlights and um I think we had a, a quick discussion for about 20 minutes um I don't know how much footage they ended up using but um we actually got uh, we got we we got a deal from like one of the dragons and um, even like the deliberation. It was so awkward. It felt really awkward at the time because we were like, can we deliberate this? And then we didn't know where to go because there was like a room somewhere. And then they told us they weren't actually using that room. Like we were because <laughs> we were basing our experiences on yeah. past episodes that we've watched, and we're like, oh, okay, they do this. It's like, yeah. why can't we do this? So I guess it was uh, yeah. trying to figure out what was reality and what was for the show I guess so yeah, um but. so I think we asked for like $180,000 for like a small like 15% of the company or whatever the <sighs> the the show actually ended up in like some handshake deal where we ended up reluctantly but yeah a larger part than we wanted <laughs> um but in real life um after sort of going through that process we realized you know we're just really early on um in this journey and we didn't want to let it go yet so, um, you know, it was great as an eye-opening experience um, and just to even, you know, familiarize idea, uh, the idea of us just even pitching. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think, um, you know, a lot of advice that you'll see when you get into funding space is try to hold on to your companies for as long as you possibly can. So, you know, given that we've bootstrapped for this many years now and, and we're now sort of like, you know, we're looking at that journey again um that really held true for us so it was more of an experience than anything i appreciate it so much hearing uh hearing about that listen guys thank you so much for joining i know it's been a full hour and we can go on forever and i have some yeah. more questions that i i know i can ask but the you know the bottom line is you know you are doing something really interesting and i know i know the product is such a great product i've tasted it myself um, you know, so I, and I admire, I admire the, the entrepreneurial journey, right? Like I admire the, uh, the transition from corporate world and, and having the courage to, you know, especially in the middle of everything that was going on for you from a family and financial perspective, uh, to say, you know, screw this, let's do this, uh, and, 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 and not regret the, that decision and, 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 and hopefully, uh, 
Uh, and I know this, I know this, I know you're going to be incredibly successful. But thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts. I know a lot of people uh, will appreciate uh, uh, learning about your experience. Thanks thank you so much for having us. It was just a joy and pleasure. And um, hopefully this helps someone out there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, thanks. Keep doing what you're doing and building this wonderful community of entrepreneurs. And um, we love following you guys as well. So it's mutual. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.